Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with our body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, please do open your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 6. It's the Gospel of Luke, and we are in chapter 6. This morning we continue in our study of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, We've officially finished the introduction, which is verses 20 through 26, a section perhaps most famously known to you as the Beatitudes. And so last time we finally started the sermon proper of Jesus, that is to say, we dipped our toes into the main content of his sermon. Uh, We looked at verses 27 and 28. This morning, we'll continue working our way through this tremendous teaching. It is a very critical sermon, a very important teaching of our Lord. And so it's been already such a rich and compelling study for us. And so before we jump into it, let me read the greater section, which is verses 27 through 38. Again, last time we covered 27 and 28. This morning, we'll continue on with 29 through 31. But before we get into it, let me read here for you again the entire unit, which is verses 27 through 38 to set the scene for us. And Luke records these words under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, this is Jesus talking, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Treat others the same way you want them to treat you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. And do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Pardoned and you will be pardoned. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Well, as I pointed out for you last time, we come now to the very first command of Jesus in all of the Gospel of Luke, uh, which is pretty amazing that we've been through six chapters, and yet this is the very first time that we receive a command from our Lord. And what's fascinating is that he comes out of the gate here with a series of 15 imperatives, uh, which is the fancy word for command, Uh, 15 commands, and all of which center around this great theme of love. 
And so last time we looked at those first four in verses 27 and 28, which essentially capture the entire command or concept to love. And so remember there were just four different ways in which true love is expressed. And so we saw that true love, first of all, is to be our posture. Second, true love is something that works itself out in tangible service. Thirdly, true love is expressed through our words, or as he says here, blessing. And then fourthly, true love is a love that prays. And so we saw that all four of those, again, fill out that greater or broader command of love. Now, what's important to keep in mind in all of this is the context in which Jesus is commanding this love. And so remember, this is not a love for just anybody. Rather, he is speaking here specifically about love for the enemy. That is to say, for those who oppose you, or more specifically, those who oppose the gospel. And so remember, these aren't enemies in just any category of life, but these are explicit enemies of the cross. These are enemies of the gospel. These are enemies of those who oppose your profession of Jesus Christ as Lord. These are those who are hostile to you because of your devotion to Jesus Christ. Again, verse 22, these are those who persecute you, notice, but on account of the Son of Man. And so there is a very explicit reason for why these people are in opposition to you. And so as we talk about love throughout this section, just keep in mind that Jesus has a very specific context in mind. People use these verses all the time for many different things. You're hearing it a lot these days, but the context here is the Christian's love for the enemy or love more specifically for their persecutor. In fact, remember the Sermon on the Mount is primarily a sermon about what true discipleship is going to look like. And so as he begins to address his true disciples or those who have ears to hear, as he says here in verse 27, he's beginning to prepare them for all that he knew was to come, which of course would be tremendous suffering. It would be rejection. It would be hostility. And for the sake of the son of man, again, verse 22. And so what I tried to bring out for you last time is that his, his overarching point in this passage is that to truly follow him requires that not only do you suffer as he suffered, but that you follow his example in how he suffered and specifically why he suffered. That is to say that you are to love your enemy in the midst of your persecution. And because it is through that love through which salvation for the enemy is made possible, which of course is the goal of love. And so you can go back and listen to that if you missed it. But what we come to now here this morning is what love requires of us if love is to be true or if love is to be an effective kind of love. In other words, love is not just some abstract or sentimental idea, but rather love, if it's a true love, will actually accomplish something. That is to say, it will bear fruit. Love will bring something into being. In fact, never forget that Jesus' love for the sinner, his love for the enemy actually accomplished something. It actually brought salvation about. His love effectively redeemed. It effectively reconciled the enemy to him. And so in a similar way, if we're now a disciple of Christ, then our love as well will produce something. It will accomplish something. And that is the point that he is going to be stressing throughout this section. True love always produces fruit. And so when it comes to the topic of love, and and when you think about love, there might be various things that come to your mind. 
So for example, some people think about warm feelings. Uh, some people think about just being a supportive person. Some people, of course, uh, think often of romance. Uh, many think of helping people who are in need. There are many things that come to mind when the idea of love is invoked. But what we're going to see here this morning is that that true love, that is to say the kind of love that defined the person of Jesus Christ, is the kind of love that truly accomplishes something and because true love always acts in accord to truth. And yet in order for true love to accomplish salvation among the enemy, it necessarily requires, as we'll see here this morning, something very important to happen in your life. And so what we're going to see is that true love requires always for the Christian to die to self. And that is going to be the main point of this passage. Any love that is a true love is not primarily about the person who is showing love, but always about the person who is being loved. And so in order for a person to truly love, a person must learn this very critical concept of dying to self. Because as he's going to develop this, learning to die to self is necessary for true love to abound. And because without it, the enemy cannot receive the gospel. Very important theme. And so this is going to be an important concept because love, um, which again is, is defined here as death to self, is that all important mechanism through which, as Jesus says, the gospel will go forth. And so I think if that we, we can understand that and if we can seek to live in that way in our own lives, and not only will it require perhaps first a very great shift in our mind, a, a great shift in our own thinking, but also perhaps in a positive sense, you will see personally an increase in fruitfulness. Fruitfulness for the gospel. In fact, this is a conviction embodied not only by Jesus himself, but something we see all throughout the book of Acts, something we see with every single one of the apostles who were so instrumental in the explosive growth of the church, and not the least of which, of course, was the apostle Paul himself, Paul was a man who understood this. He, he exemplified the characteristic of dying to self to a very great degree. He understood that if the gospel was to convert the enemy, then it required that he first deny himself, that he pick up his cross daily, and then follow his Lord. And of course, this is an example that we see all throughout church history as well, faithful disciples, faithful missionaries intentionally choosing to deny their preference, deny their rights, deny in many cases their very own life, but so that the gospel might reach the mind and the heart of an unbelieving world. And so what we have here before us this morning are four illustrations that paint a picture for us. And so every single one of these showing us what is absolutely required of the Christian, and that is that they must live in a constant state of true love for the enemy, which necessarily requires death to self. Death to self, for it is the denial of self and the willingness to be, hear this, unjustly treated, that love and therefore salvation for the enemy will be accomplished. Death to self, that is the theme of this passage. And so with that, let's take a look at these four illustrations and see how Jesus develops this idea of true love, which again is embodied in 
self-sacrifice. So number one, verse 29, and he begins with this very famous statement. And he says, notice, and whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other also. Now, first of all, there are a lot of people who reject this statement of Jesus as ridiculous and hyperbole. And because who in their right mind is just going to let someone walk up to him and give him a blow to the face and then turn their cheek to let him do it to the other side. And then after which offer a blessing, verse 28. And so that is just ridiculous. Why would you not defend yourself? Well, at one level, that kind of skepticism is correct. That is a little bit ridiculous. And because that is not at all actually what Jesus is talking about. And so this is not a verse about passivity or giving up your right to defend yourself or becoming a doormat for people to walk on. Now, unfortunately, that's how it's been used in past and and many people still use it that way today. And so many think that becoming passive in protecting yourself or not defending yourself when somebody attacks you is somehow virtuous, but that is not a virtue. And so if you're knocked to the ground and someone just keeps kicking you, and you start silently quoting this verse to yourself as they keep on kicking you, that is not loving your abuser. That is just stupid. (laughs) And so Jesus is not calling here for passivity, certainly in all aspects of life. And so if someone comes up to you and for no good reason just slaps you across the face, if you then turn your other cheek to let them do it to the other side, then perhaps you deserve it. And because that is not normal, That is not normal. In fact, God has built into you a mechanism for self-defense. This is how he has wired us. And so if someone comes swinging at you, you should defend yourself. If you're walking down the street and somebody decides to mug you, again, you should defend yourself. In fact, even when Jesus was standing before the high priest in John chapter 18, turn there if you can quick, um, John chapter 18, you remember there that the high priest is questioning Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching and because he was beginning to create some tremendous problems. And so as Jesus is being questioned, if you know the passage, you remember that he actually invokes the law and because he understands that in order for him to have to give an answer to the high priest, the law provided that there first be two or three witnesses present and so that a person would not unintentionally incriminate themselves. And so this is something that God had put into Mosaic law. He did it very intentionally, and it was always to protect the accused. And so the fact that the high priest was even questioning him here without some credible witnesses, the high priest was very much out of line and, as Jesus knew, in violation of Mosaic law. And so Jesus essentially calls him out on that. And so in verse 19 of chapter 18, notice John records these words. He says, and the high priest therefore questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. And Jesus answered him and said, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together and I spoke nothing in secret. And here it is. So why do you question me? Rather, question those who have heard what I spoke to them, for behold, these know what I said. So he's calling upon the witnesses. He's calling upon all these people who could have given credible testimony. And so Jesus here is in perfect 
step with the law. And so he's essentially calling out the high priest for violating this very important law and putting Jesus into a very precarious position. And so in verse 22, it says, and when he had said this, one of the officers standing by gave Jesus a blow saying, is that the way that you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him and said, if I have spoken wrongly, bear witness of the wrong, but if rightly, and here it is, why do you strike me? In other words, Jesus has just been struck in the mouth. And yet instead of turning the other cheek, he questions the injustice of the act. Which of course means then that if Luke 6.29 is to be taken literally and is indeed arguing for some kind of passivity, then Jesus in John chapter 18 just broke his very own command, right? And so obviously that is not what Jesus is arguing for in Luke chapter 6. Paul as well does this in Acts chapter 23. Uh, You can read the story on your own, but Paul does this when he's unjustly struck in the mouth at the command of the high priest there, a high priest at the time named Ananias. And yet, once again, in that account, you'll see no turning of the other cheek by even the great apostle himself. In fact, Paul even gets a little bit mouthy and is outraged at the injustice of this high priest. And so the point then is that being physically assaulted for the cause of Christ, while you are forbidden to seek revenge because vengeance, as we know, is for God alone, nowhere does turning the other cheek mean that you are somehow forbidden to defend yourself. That is not what this is talking about. And so that is a very great misapplication of this verse. And a lot of really bad theology has been built off of this to try and argue for some kind of passivity, not to mention it ignores passages such as Luke chapter 22, where Jesus explicitly commands his disciples to go out with a sword And that if they, in that passage, don't own a sword, then he tells them that they they should very quickly sell their cloaks so that they can go and buy a sword. And so in light of that, what is he saying then? What is the meaning of this very famous statement? Well, in order to understand it rightly, you have to understand a little bit of the context and the culture, and you have to understand um, that the phrase here of turning the other cheek was a well-known cultural idiom at the time, which of course means that his audience would have understood exactly what he was referring to when he said this. But the concept of getting smacked across the face or when Jesus or Paul, for example, are smashed across the face by the high priest, it's it's not so much a punishment or a flogging. Um, There were other means for that, like receiving 39 lashes or receiving uh, floggings with a cat of nine tails, which is basically a whip with nine cords that had these uh, metal serrations on the end of them. I think you just found one in the other church, right? (laughs) I mean, it was a real one. It had real metal ends on it. Um, I don't know what they were doing. Um, (laughs) I don't ask questions. Um, And so there there were other means for punishment. You could do these floggings, you can get whipped with the cat of nine tails. And so Here, a smack across the face was not so much a form of punishment, rather it was simply meant to produce a form of public humiliation. And that is the point. In other words, to be smacked across the face was how you were brought very public indignity. And so when he says, turn the other cheek, it simply means that that whenever you're humiliated or whenever you receive shame on account of Christ or you're receiving hostility or anger, and again, explicitly for the name of Jesus Christ, He's simply saying that whenever you're you're scorned and rejected on account of his name, 
that you are called in that moment to just keep on loving. And then here's the point, to keep on enduring more shame. Turn the other cheek. And so certainly as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are forbidden to seek revenge or return hateful action for hate. But rather as a follower of Jesus Christ, what he's saying is that you are to endure suffering without retaliation, but then just get ready to endure more. That is his point. Turn the other cheek. Be willing for the cause of Christ to receive more shame and never seek your own revenge. In other words, when you boil it all down, the underlying principle is that he is calling for a love that is inexhaustible and limitless. And so you can be righteously angry at the injustice. You can be appalled at the hate and the anger, but the Christian and the follower of Jesus Christ is forbidden to get even. But then on top of that, they're also commanded to now actively show love. And that is his point. You are to keep on seeking their good, which of course is a very difficult thing to do. And because the moment that you're crossed, there's just something within you that wants to rise up, right? This is true for you, you know this, and especially in the name of justice. But the concept here of turning the other cheek teaches that love is of a very different category. In fact, love is not necessarily justice, is it? Rather, love endures through injustice. And then above and beyond merely enduring rejection, love still seeks the good of the unjust enemy, which is something very counter to this world, especially in a day in which everyone right now is fighting for their own justice. And yet love, as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, is something which does not seek its own. It does not seek its own. That is to say, it does not seek its right. It does not seek its just return. Rather, love seeks always to build up. It always seeks to bring good to another. And so Jesus here calls us in the midst of the hostility to keep on loving. And especially when we know that more hostility is to come. And so Jesus here says that if you're one who's truly following after him, then you will be known by your ability to love another. In other words, when hostility comes, will you endure more? That is the question. And yet as you endure and show love for the enemy, what you actually do is you now create the very opportunity to show why you are so different that you are not about self, that you are not about their harm despite their harm to you, but that you are about your enemy's eternal good. And so as you endure, you literally create the opportunity in the midst of that hostility to show the gospel, to bring the gospel, to bring the good news of what the enemy so desperately needs. And so again, this is not passivity make no mistake, this is not passivity. This is not the refusal to defend yourself as if that was in and of itself virtuous. That makes very little sense of the context. This is not saying do not defend yourself against an aggressor. Rather, it's saying seek no revenge, bear up under shame, be willing to endure more, and then keep on loving. Keep on loving. That is keep on seeking to bring good. 
And so if somebody breaks into your house in the middle of the night, defend yourself. That is the virtuous thing to do. But if someone publicly shames you on account of Jesus Christ, on account of your devotion to him as Lord, then simply refuse to defend your honor and then find a way to actively seek their good. And then after you bless them, and after you seek their good, and after you pray for them, again, verses 27 and 28, then get ready for them to do it again. That is his point. And so listen, God will set all things right at the end of all time, will he not? He will set all things right. Justice will happen. All accounts will be settled. And so as a result, his point here is that right now you are freed. Therefore, you are freed to simply love. Just love. That is our task. That is his great desire for us. You do not need to, quote, get justice. He will take care of that for you, but rather our responsibility as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, who did not revile when he was reviled, is to simply love. Number two, second illustration, end of verse 29. He states, and whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Now, with this one, again, it is important to understand the culture. First of all, many living in Palestine in those days, you can imagine they were not wealthy. In fact, it was very common to have only one outer cloak, which is what he means here by coat. In fact, you could just translate this as, uh, and whoever takes away your outer garment, do not withhold your inner garment either. And so this, this outer coat was essentially just a piece of outer um, clothing. And so they, they didn't have the privilege of being able to have a full, full wardrobe like we do in our day, where perhaps this morning you had multiple coats to choose from. And so most people, for the most part, had only one outer cloak and they needed it to protect them. They needed it to keep warm. Uh, in fact, it was a piece of clothing that would typically be used as their personal blanket as they slept at night. It snows in Palestine. In fact, this is why, for example, in Exodus chapter 22 and verses 26 through 27, it says in the law of Moses, these words, he says, if you take your neighbor's coat as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And so clearly in many cases, this is all that people had. And so they needed it for survival, literally. And so Jesus here picks up on this well-known cultural situation and states that if somebody takes this from you, it's the term aero. Um, which is sometimes used to speak of ripping something away, taking something by violent force. Um, and so if someone takes this outer coat of yours, then you should not withhold your inner garment either. And so again, just another extreme example to speak of the limitless nature of love. And so what is, what is the point? Well, similar to the first illustration, whenever you're wronged, you're unjustly treated, and especially on account of Jesus Christ, instead of seeking vengeance or even justice, the follower of Christ is to remain vulnerable to yet another attack. And so again, this is, this is not talking about issues of justice, which must be met, and issues of justice in which the government or the authorities have to step in, things like murder, things like rape, so on and so forth. But rather, this is a, a tangible illustration that demonstrates that hostility on account of Christ is never to be met with revenge or with the kind of payback mentality, but with limitless grace. 
And that is the point. And so, of course, they don't deserve the cloak, which they've just taken from you, and they certainly don't deserve your inner garment then on top of that, and yet that is the very essence of the issue. Grace, which is what is to define all true love, grace is giving to a person that which they don't deserve, but at great cost to you. That is grace. And so the point of Jesus here is not to say that you should become a doormat and just let people run all over you, but it is to say that whenever you're persecuted on account of his name, instead of seeking that which is rightfully yours, love is always being willing to remain vulnerable to yet another attack, but so that you might be ready to give an account for the hope that is in you. And because that is the nature of grace. Now, since God is a God of justice, you might be wondering why Jesus isn't calling you also to rise up and seek that justice. Well, I suppose technically you could. Technically, you could fight for justice. Technically, you could demand that which is right in both the sight of God and all men. But what I think Jesus is getting at here, and hear this, is that true love is a far greater pathway to the gospel than justice because true love, which is the embodiment of grace, is the essence of what the gospel is. In fact, if you think about it, justice demands, justice demands that there be no grace. Justice is justice. But further than that, the presumption here is that you are a true disciple. And so as one who has not been shown the justice of God, where God has demanded that you pay for your own sin, but rather you are one who has been shown limitless grace, then how much more ought you be compelled always to give that grace? In fact, just think about this for a moment. As a sinner who has offended an infinitely holy God, you don't actually want justice, do you? You don't want God to be just with you. And because if God was just with you, then all that is rightly yours is eternal condemnation. And so you want God to be gracious with you, right? You want that which you don't deserve, which is salvation. You want an eternal pardon from your sin, which doesn't mean not guilty. It means guilty, but pardoned. And so God being the gracious God that he is, not only doesn't give you that which you do deserve, which is hell. But then on top of that, he also gives you grace, which is that which you don't deserve. Namely heaven. And so as a follower of this gracious God, where you've been pardoned from an eternal offense against an infinitely holy God, the question becomes, then how can there really be a limit to the grace that you show the enemy? And that is what is at the heart of his point. 
And so this is not to be taken as some kind of literal command necessarily, but rather the point is that you have offended an infinitely perfect God who is a God of justice. And yet for you only grace has abounded. And so when another sinner commits a sin against you, you who are another sinner, and how much more must you be compelled to show grace that has no limit? And especially when you're sinned against because of Christ. In fact, as one who's been shown an infinite measure of grace, then how unjust would it be to deny a person of grace? Because that is, beloved, the mark that you're truly following him, that you are truly of him. For you model that which exemplifies his attitude toward you. Boundless, limitless, unending grace. There is no cap. There can be no ceiling. And so the point is that we have zero right as a sinner saved by grace to create a line at which our grace ends. Illustration number three, verse 30. He states, and give to everyone who asks of you. Give to everyone who asks of you. Now with this one, the principle here is that true love meets needs, but without prejudice. True love meets needs without prejudice. Now, of course, this would have been very important for Jesus' audience who were primarily Jewish and therefore had a pretty good disdain for all that was Gentile, that is non-Jew. And so the word here for everyone, give to everyone who asks is very important. And so again, here we see the concept of self-denial. The Jews were God's chosen people. Um, They were his people. And so the thought of having to deny self to meet the needs of a non-Jewish person would have been very radical. And so Jesus here comes along and says that true love cares always, but for the enemy. And so in the context, again, where a non-Jew would have been the enemy, this would have been extremely radical. Now, the term here for ask means just that. There's nothing deep. There's nothing unique about this word. It's just that standard word for ask or to request. And so this is not a person who is necessarily demanding something of you or seeking an unjust profit from your good graces. Rather, the idea here is a person who is in genuine need, but who understands that you have the ability to help them. Now, again, there's nothing unjust necessarily technically on the face of things to withhold that aid. But again, this is where the concept of grace comes into play. And so for the Christian, one who's been shown grace, they don't really have an option. This is, notice, a command of Jesus. This isn't just a suggestion or a nice thing that you can do when you're in the right mood or you have a little bit of extra cash. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, what do you have that has not first been given to you? And so as one who has been shown immeasurable grace, there is no room in the Christian life to ever withhold anything when there is a person in genuine need. Now, that is not to say that to give without prejudice 
necessarily implies that you are to give without discernment or wisdom or prudence. In other words, just because somebody says that they have a need, that is not a magic phrase for which you should just open your wallet. In fact, there are many times where I have personally counseled people not to give something to somebody after I hear of the situation. And because sometimes giving to a person is not grace or it is not necessarily the loving thing to do. Rather, it is something which now simply encourages negligence or encourages laziness or helps a person to continue in their bad behaviors or their poor decision-making. In fact, there is a point in which now that the person knows that they can take advantage of your grace or keep leeching off the, the gracious hearts of Christians or perhaps even a local church, or worse, just keep guilting them with sob stories or making them feel like this is what Jesus would do, well, I would say that that is the point in which the Christian ought to go back and read the Proverbs. In fact, I think often about the poor beggars and truly impoverished people that lace the streets of Ethiopia, which I visit often. Most of them are incredibly hardworking, many of them putting in 12 to 16 hour days, but just so that they might eat. In fact, many of the Christians there have a profound sense of why Jesus told the church to pray, give us this day our daily bread something which most of us never think of having to pray. And so these people live in inescapable poverty. And yet their poverty is not due to their laziness or thinking that they're somehow owed something. So they're just wanting or waiting on the government or voting for certain policies as if that is the true role of the government anyway, biblically, but rather their condition is simply a result of the circumstance into which they've been born. And so the beggars there are of a much different kind than many of the panhandlers in our nation. Now, I don't pretend to know everybody's situation, and so I don't want to just paint with a broad brush here, but I am trying to say that the principle of Jesus here shouldn't be understood as just a carte blanche command that has no conditions. In fact, the Proverbs would say, let him who does not work, what? Not eat. If you don't work, then you don't eat. That is a biblical worldview. That is how God sees things. And so when you just keep giving to a person who refuses to live in accord to biblical standards, I would argue that you're not actually helping them. But the Proverbs will say often, for example, in chapter 19, to rescue a fool guarantees that you will need to rescue them again. It's phenomenal parenting advice, by the way. In fact, Paul picks up on this as well in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 8, where he says, but if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith, and hear this, is worse, he is worse than an unbeliever. Sounds pretty harsh. How can you be worse than an unbeliever? Well, Paul would say that that is not the kind of person that you should give to if they keep asking you for help. In fact, to give to that kind of person and continue to give to that kind of person would not be an act of grace. In fact, I would argue that it could be profoundly unloving. It is not loving to help a person continue in their sin. That is not grace. Especially if they profess Jesus Christ as Lord. 
But having said that, the principle is to say, and yet again, that true love will intentionally go with less, but so that you might help a person who is in true need. And especially when you know that you might never get it back. For Proverbs 19 and verse 17 will also say, he who is gracious to a poor man, notice, lends to the Lord and he, God, will repay him for his good deed. And so if anyone asks you for help, the loving response, according to Jesus, is always to say yes. And I would add here that if you're not certain if you should give to a person who's asking you and because you're not quite certain if they're being a fool or they're just having a rough time, well, then I would say that you should always err on the side of yes. And because again, that is grace. That is grace. And so if for some reason you end up being taken for a ride by a person, then it doesn't really matter because God is still going to sort it all out in the end. And so our responsibility is, is not to work hard at finding reasons for which we should not give, but rather work really hard at finding ways to give above and beyond. And especially when you have been wronged. And because do not forget the context here is in reference to those who oppose you on account of the gospel. And then finally, verse four, end of verse 30, or number four, end of verse 30. Notice he states, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Now, this one's a bit more difficult and because this is not a person who's just asking like the previous one. Rather, notice this is now a person who has taken it away. Again, this is that same word that we just saw here at the end of verse 29. It's the, the word aero, which again carries this idea of violence or removal by force. And so the idea here when he says, do not demand it back is the idea of retribution. And so the underlying point is that true love, here this never seeks to get even, and especially when you have been harmed on account of Christ. That is the principle. So perhaps this is theft, perhaps this is the pillaging of your property, but whatever it might be, the point is that in order to seek somebody's good, as Jesus has called us to here, it presumes that it is not possible to seek a person's good if you're also trying to get even. In fact, those are opposing efforts. You you cannot show grace if you're also trying to get even or demand your rights. They are a contradiction of terms. And so again, even in the name of justice, it is impossible to show grace if your goal, think about this, is to give to a person what they truly deserve. And so again, here you can demand your rights. You can demand justice. You can demand equity, whatever it might be. But just understand that the gospel and therefore Christian love is not a message of justice, but a message of grace. And so in light of that, this becomes a very difficult thing to do, I think. It's hard enough to act this way toward your family and toward other Christians, but how much more than toward those who are hostile and actively seeking your harm. And yeah, this was the experience of the early church and for many throughout church history, but a gracious love is always 
the mechanism here that a gracious love is always the mechanism through which the gospel goes forward. In fact, this is true for many Christians around the world today. Many live in a constant state of fearing theft and humiliation and mistreatment. Many, even this very week, have had their houses and their possessions and even their own family ripped from them on account of Jesus Christ. And so the question for us is, so how would you respond? How would you respond? I think it'd be very difficult to not want revenge if your child was ripped from your home. But Jesus here says that not only is revenge forbidden for the Christian, but then on top of that, they are to go above and beyond to now seek their persecutors. Good. That is so difficult. And yet that is something that is not only possible for the Christian. In fact, it is only possible for the Christian. There is no other kind of explanation for that sort of response. You don't see that in any other realm of the world. Seeking the good of somebody who has brought you harm is a distinctly Christian response. In fact, there's a lot of social efforts and causes these days. You know this. But what's fascinating to watch is at the moment that a person or an effort is crossed, you see those efforts stop immediately. Social good is worthwhile, but only as long as the person who is seeking your good or the person whose good you're seeking doesn't put you into a bad position. But the Christian's call is to go so far beyond that. The Christian's call is to seek the good of the enemy and seek the good of one who is actively seeking to bring you harm, and especially, again, as a result of the gospel. In fact, notice verse 31. He sums it all up with what is perhaps one of the most famous statements in all of the Bible, and he perfectly captures everything that he's been talking about. And so he says in verse 31, and just as you want people to treat you in the same way, treat them. Someone once told me that the fallacy in this so-called golden rule is that not everyone wants the same thing. But that completely misses the point. Again, the point in, in light of everything that he's been saying is that you are to treat people notice in the same way that you want to be treated, which is what? Well, not with justice. Again, you don't want justice. You want grace. <laughs> and so in an utterly graceless society where everyone right now is demanding justice for every micro offense, what should the Christian do? The Christian is to love. And how is love displayed? always through grace. And what does grace require? Well, that when you're wrong, that you not only not seek revenge, but then on top of that, you give bountifully beyond that, that which they 
don't deserve. Which again, necessarily implies that you've just experienced, hear this, injustice. Which is, by the way, why it is so bizarre to me that Christians, Christians right now are demanding for things like reparations. That is so opposed, hear this, to a gospel of grace where you do not demand that which is rightfully yours. And so, of course, this all goes back to what I mentioned in the beginning, which is that in order to live this kind of life, then it requires that you refuse to demand which is rightfully yours, which means then that you must be willing to be wronged, which also means that you must live a life in which you are constantly dying to self. Christian life is not about you. The Christian life is a perpetual state of dying to you. And so that you might seek the good of another, but for the ultimate purpose of bringing the gospel. And that is especially true in the face of persecution. For how you respond to your persecutor, according to Jesus, will open incredible avenues for the gospel. And so just to bring this all to a close, if you had to boil it all down, what is the character that defines the kind of love that Jesus commands? Well, it is a love that embodies grace. And that is what I want you to walk away with this morning. Again, love is dying to self. It's a willingness to be wronged, but so that others might receive that which they don't deserve. It's being willing to have a deep injustice committed against you, but so that you might have an opportunity in the face of that injustice to return that wrong, unjust action with something good. And why? Well, so that the very same love which God has shown to the sinner might be put on tangible display through you. And so the point of Jesus here is that the most vile of sinner, especially the persecutor, will be convinced of your message, which is a message of grace, if they can see it in action. If they see that God's grace is a true transformative power And so when you love a person, and again, especially a person who is actively seeking your good and is opposed to you and showing you much hostility, when you love that person, then you demonstrate to them the power of the gospel to produce in you a kind of love, hear this, that they cannot understand. Because it is a response that is truly otherworldly. In fact, it's when you act in such a manner as this that you truly demonstrate the character of our Lord And so they see Jesus in you. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 23 states that we have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 
So how is Jesus able to love? Well, first of all, it's what was truly in him, as we saw last time. But second, notice or hear this. He entrusted himself to the Father who will set all things right. And so when we come to grips with that and become controlled by that wonderful truth that God will set all things right, then in that truth, again, we are now free to love entirely unconditionally. And so please hear me carefully, but while grace is truly unjust, because it gives you a person that which they don't deserve, never forget that God is still a righteously just judge. And he will not let any unjust action or even thought go unpunished. But in light of that impending reality, then the truth is that we have been set free to no longer have to defend ourselves. That are set instead are set free to love in a manner that displays the very grace shown to us, which means that for the Christian, hear this, it is profoundly okay in this life to be wronged. It is profoundly okay in this life to be wronged, to have injustice committed against you. We are not to be a people primarily who fight for justice. but primarily a people known for showing love and shining grace toward those who least deserve it. Because you have been saved by a gospel of grace. And yet when you do that, you put yourself in your circumstance, as difficult as it may be, into the hands of a just judge. This is exactly what Christ did when he was reviled for no wrong thing. He just kept on entrusting himself, present tense. So day by day, moment by moment, he kept on entrusting himself to the father. And so as a result, he unjustly went to the cross. He unjustly hung on the cross and took on the full wrath deserved for those who were hostile toward him, which is you and me. And yet when he did that, that most phenomenal act of grace, what he perfectly demonstrated to a world of watching sinners was the unmeasured, limitless love of the Father. For he loved the sinner while they were yet in the state, hear this, of hating him. And that is a tremendous kind of love. It is not something that is possible for the world. It is not possible for those, as we talked about, who do not have love in them. God is love. And so if God is not in them, they cannot love. And so what Jesus is saying with these four illustrations is that when you love like this, when you love as Christ is loved, then the point is that there is no rational explanation for why you love. And so the world cannot figure it out. 
There is no ulterior motive that can be sniffed out by them for why you're showing them love. There is no personal gain to be had in loving the sinner. In fact, often there's only loss and humiliation. There is a very great cost to loving the enemy. And so in that sense, then, if you think about it, that kind of love is both pure and undefiled. And so the result for the sinner who has shown that love is potentially transformation. And because remember, Jesus' love effectively accomplished something. And so as one man says, when you love the wicked sinner and hostile world with a limitless and otherworldly kind of love and therefore love for which there is no explanation, this then is what makes the gospel believable. And that is why we love. We love because we first saw love displayed in Jesus Christ. And seeing that love, we're transformed by the grace and the mercy of God. And so now being beneficiaries of that love, it is now our great task to pick up that mantle and become the very conduit through which that love of God is now displayed. And it's a very radical thing. In many ways, it's very straightforward, not a lot of complexity. It's just very difficult to do. And yet it is what it means to be in Christ. It is perhaps the greatest indicator of whether or not Christ is in you. Whether or not you're a true disciple. And so while we certainly don't do this perfectly, the question to ask yourself this morning is, so does this define you? Is this your bent? Is this your natural disposition as one who's been converted by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ? Is this your response to those who seek your harm and stand in opposition? Or are you always fighting for your right? Are you always trying to defend yourself when someone does you wrong? But gracious, limitless, boundless, unending grace is the essence of God and therefore a tremendous sign that he is truly in you. So that is the question and that is what I leave you with this morning. And next time we'll see him develop this all the more.